The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, page 833 in the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 26, we'll be looking at verses 57 through 68. Worship the the Lord together uh, by listening carefully to this, the public reading of his word, Matthew chapter 26 and beginning in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Amen. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together, seeking his help. Let's pray. Lord, we do seek your help. Come to us, we pray. Bless us, O Lord God, as we hear your word again this day. Please pour out your spirit upon us and grant that by faith we might see the wonderful Savior before us. Lord, help us truly to receive and to continue in his word. And thereby, Lord God, might we live as faithful disciples of our Savior. In his name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, his disciples have all left him. They have fled. He's, he's all alone now, humanly speaking, in terms of anyone supporting him. There's none at all. And he's in the hands of his enemies. In a sense, we could say his life has ended in terms of having any personal freedom. You note in verse 57, it says that, that those who had seized him led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. From now on, he will go only where they lead him, but he will go willingly. He is surrendered to the will of the Father, and that will involve submission to a, an unjust, a corrupt human judicial process. There will be sort of two phases to his trial. They can't have him put to death without having him properly condemned by the Roman authorities. But as we will see in a later sermon, that really will be just kind of a formality, uh, 
Pilate will not execute true justice. He'll simply act as a stooge who will be easily pressured into giving the Jewish authorities exactly what they ask. So in a sense, the real trial, humanly speaking, is what we see this morning as Jesus here appears before the Jewish ruling body, the Sanhedrin. But this is no trial either, is it? He's really condemned by a kangaroo court, and yet he willingly submits to all of this, and he does so, of course, not denying his messianic calling, rather fulfilling it. The few words which he does speak in our text uh, so abundantly make that clear, don't they? And they speak to his trust that God will prove it. Uh, Our message this morning is this, that as true Messiah, Jesus silently submitted to his unjust condemnation while trusting God for vindication, trusting God to vindicate him. Just two main points this morning. We're going to consider first our Lord's submissive silence, and then secondly, his clear messianic claim, submissive silence, and yet clear messianic claim. That's what's before us. Consider first, then, his uh, submissive silence, and we have two subpoints under this first main point. First, that he is subject, subjected to false accusations, and that secondly, he offers no defense to them. So false accusations, indeed, wickedly motivated false accusations, in the minds of his accusers, he was guilty even before the trial would begin. Isaiah 53, verse 7, we recall, described the coming Messiah as that that servant of the Lord. He's described as the lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, Isaiah tells us, so he opened not his mouth. Silent submission, even as he is being led to the slaughter, indeed, he was not being led to a fair trial, but to certain death. You know, righteous judge, judges would have carefully listened to all of the testimony, right? They would have weighed all of the evidence and then made a determination about whether or not he was guilty. That's not what happened here. Verse 59 makes that very clear. We see that the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So their minds were already made up. Jesus was guilty. It was just a question of how they, it was just a matter of figuring out how to prove it. And they were willing to trample all over the ninth commandment in so doing. Matthew tells us they were seeking false testimony. So on the one hand, clearly they were willing completely to pervert justice, yet in some ways it was as if they were seeming to try to do things Properly, they were wanting to find witnesses whose testimony did not contradict each other. Is this because in their their self-deceit, they were sort of trying to convince themselves that they were actually acting righteously, sort of maintaining some, some semblance of true justice? Perhaps more likely what they were trying to do is figure out how to present a case which would be able to be upheld under the scrutiny of the Roman authorities, not only under Mosaic law, but even even under Roman law. If multiple witnesses contradicted each other, failed to agree, then the testimony would be inadmissible and would be deemed false. And so we see in verse 
60, that they, they, they could not make use of these false witnesses. Many came forward. I find it amazingly that apparently there were so many people willing to come with made-up stories, but they weren't smart enough to you know, get together and make sure that their stories were not completely contradicting each other. It's like the Lord gave them over to utter folly so as to give something of a, of a true apostolic testimony that these were false charges. Jesus was innocent of that from, of which they accused him. And speaking of apostolic testimony, I suspect that that's one of the reasons why it was important for Matthew to note that there was Peter witnessing all that was taking place, right? So we see it in verse 58. He, he's followed Jesus cowardly at a good, safe distance, but, but he follows all the way to the courtyard of the high priest, and he takes his seat there right next to the guards to see the end. And so Peter's cowardice and his unfaithfulness, notwithstanding, it's, it's marvelous to see the way the Lord was, was working to, to bring about a true, faithful, apostolic witness. Peter, along with the other disciples, would testify to all these events which had taken place. And his testimony would be that Jesus was innocent. These were false charges. And wonderfully, it was also testimony of our Lord's willingness to endure such evil silently. He just sat there. Imagine the scene sitting there while witness after witness came forth, breathing out lies. These were lies from the pit of hell, lies about Jesus. What irony to think that in the end, he would be the one condemned of the sin of blasphemy. These were blasphemous lies because they were telling lies about God, lies about him who was the son of God. Israel's religious leaders had turned the court of the Lord into a court of utter blaspheming. We see that finally, the end of verse 60, that that two did come forward with testimony that did agree, still lies, but lies which agreed with each other. Verse 61, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. We, we have no record of, of Jesus ever saying precisely those words. He did say, we read in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That is, if you destroy it, in three days I will raise it up. Of course, he was speaking of the, the, the temple of his own body. So if anything, they were, they were taking his, his words and they were twisting them and misquoting him. But how did he respond? Verse 62, we see that the, the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And there we see it, verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. We do well, I think, just to ponder that. The silence of the Lord Jesus. Glorious silence. Submissive silence. I think this this speaks to one component of our Lord's obedience, which sometimes I think perhaps we don't think enough about in this particular context. Uh, obedience to the ninth commandment. You know, our Lord, our larger catechism teaches us that one of the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment is speaking the truth unseasonably, speaking truth, but at the wrong time. And this is 
this is, I think, wonderful application that we can can make for ourselves this meaning as we, this morning as we think about the impact that the gospel should have on each one of us, because the matter of the use of the tongue is not an insignificant one, is it? Not even this point of remaining silent, right? This is not not just some obscure point in a, a catechism answer. This is a matter which is at the very heart of obedience to the Lord, James makes that clear, doesn't he, when he teaches about, about keeping a tight rein on the tongue. James one twenty six. if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. We know that the, the bridled tongue is kind of a symbol of an entire life lived with grace-empowered, godly self-control. James 3.2 says, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. We all stumble in many ways, indeed, certainly with the use of our tongue. I think we can all probably look back on our lives and think of those times where we'd have to say, why didn't I just listen? Why didn't I just keep my mouth shut? When Sunshine and I were were married, the, the song to which we danced at our wedding was the Alison Krauss song, You Say It Best When You Say Nothing At All. And it's thinking about that and thinking about how many times would I have said it so much better if I'd have just said nothing at all. Keep my mouth shut. Children, it's no small matter, is it, when, you're, when your mom or your dad say to you, right now, I need you to keep quiet. I need to close your mouth, and you need to listen. What should you do when they say that? You should close your mouth and you should listen. But as we think as we think about what we see in our text this morning, I, we would have to say it's just as important, more important than that you should keep your mouth quiet and listen is the why you should keep your mouth quiet and listen, because you belong to Jesus. And we find in Jesus one who, for your sake, controlled his tongue in obedience to God all the way to the cross where he bled and he died so that you could be forgiven of all of your evil speech and of all of your sin and so that you could honor God and honor your parents by honoring him, by controlling your tongue. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus and find grace from him to, to experience that forgiveness and that power to live in obedience. Jesus could have opened his mouth. He could have spoken truth in such a way that would have had the entire Jew, Jewish ruling body confounded and on their faces in terror before him. But Jesus knew that it was the will of the Father for him to face these charges exactly as he did as the faithful messianic servant of the Lord, the lamb led to the slaughter, the sheep before its shearers, who would be silent, the one who would not open his mouth. And in remaining silent, our Lord showed that that he indeed alone is that James chapter 3, verse 2, perfect man who bridled his tongue, who bridled his whole body, even while they were there spitting all over the law of God. What an amazing scene. There they were trampling all over the ninth commandment while Jesus was magnifying obedience to the ninth commandment. We might also call to mind the the, the words of the Proverbs in this regard. Proverbs 11, verse 12, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. 
or Proverbs 10.19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Could God's people have ever imagined the amazing way in which the wisdom of the Proverbs would be fulfilled by the Messiah, the obedience of the Messiah, active obedience. He wasn't passive. He wasn't doing nothing. This was glorious, godly restraint while transgression abounded on the part of his accusers. He obeyed. He magnified obedience, yes to the ninth commandment, indeed, yes to all of God's law, and we praise God that he did. Now, our second subpoint to this first point is that he, he offered no defense to these accusations. Obviously, we've already spoken to that here, but I would, I would have us think about one other very important reason why that is. How could Jesus sit there and accept this unjust sentence of condemnation? Why not defend himself as the righteous one? I think part of the answer to that is that that principle, which is at the very heart of the gospel, the very heart of our doctrine of atonement, substitutionary atonement, Jesus guilty in our place, Jesus dying in our place, the righteous one became the guilty one. That's the whole point of his suffering, his going to the cross. That's why he did not defend himself, our sin, our guilt, imputed to him, John Calvin put this so well in one of his sermons about the silence of Jesus, and he was actually speaking of how Jesus was silent later before the governor Pilate, but I think it applies here as well. Calvin wrote these words. He wished to bear our condemnation, and he did not intend to try a trial to justify himself, also knowing well that he had to be condemned indeed in our person. For although he was without spot or blemish, he bore all our sins upon himself. We need not be astonished then that he stood there as if he had been convicted. For otherwise, he could not have performed the office of mediator except by accepting sentence and confessing that in our persons he had deserved to be condemned. That, then, is what the silence of our Lord Jesus Christ implies in order that today we can call upon God with full voice and that we can ask him for pardon for all vices and offenses. Isn't that marvelous? Jesus willingly accepted. He embraced the the condemnation, guilty blasphemer because he became guilty for the sake of guilty blasphemers like you and like me submissive silence indeed. And yet, where it was right to speak, he spoke. And that brings us to our second main point this morning. We see his clear messianic claim. You know, when we think about the fact that throughout the entire suffering narrative, Jesus didn't speak much. So those few words that he did speak, they're worth really listening to, right? Of course, all the words of Jesus are exceedingly important. But, but look at what we see there in verse 64. What a moment this was when at last the, the, the high priest, he, I, I won't take this silence. You know, it's like he's impatient with this. I'm going to assert my authority. I demand an answer from you under oath. And we see it. In fact, we see it verse 63. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. 
Now, what we note there, what, what, was, what he was asking was he was asking uh, an answer to a question more fundamental than simply whether Jesus had done what they accused him of, of, of doing, what he, whether he had said what they had said, uh, what they accused him of saying. This really was about who are you, Jesus? Who are you? Uh, are you the Christ? And we see his answer in verse 64, beginning with those, those interesting words, you have said so. And we might wonder, why did he say it like that? Why didn't Jesus simply say, yes? Well, one commentator suggests that his answer can be paraphrased like this. Yes, but that's not how I would have put it. Or even like this. And I think this is particularly helpful in explaining the the idea here. Jesus was saying, yes, but I don't mean by that what you mean by that. And it kind of calls to mind the, uh, the the famous line from the classic film, The Princess Bride, right? Inigo Montoya, who said, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. In a sense, that's exactly what was going on here. For these accusers, Messiah meant one who would lead Israel in insurrection against Rome. And that's the kind of Messiah they would have loved to accuse Jesus of claiming to be before the Roman authorities. In support of what I'm suggesting here, it's also been suggested that our Lord's answer, you have said so, it's kind of, it's a, it's a Greek expression which deflects responsibility back on the one asking the question. So Jesus was rightly saying in so many words, yes, I am the Messiah, but I will not take responsibility for your incorrect definition of what Messiah is, right? That that's on you. That's not on me. But make no mistake about it. Our Lord did clear, clearly claim to be the Messiah. He claimed it wonderfully, beautifully, rightly, unequivocally. Indeed, in verses 63 and 64, uh, between the words of the high priest and our Lord's own words, we see coming together wonderfully three very important terms, Messiah or Christ itself, and also the term Son of God and Son of Man. All three of those those, those terms uh, come together and Jesus owns all of them. And in doing so, he really was claiming a status which no other king in Israel, no other prophet, no other priest, none other ever rightly could have claimed. Jesus uh, was particularly fond, it seems, of that word son of man, which we see in verse 64. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the, the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. There was a, a clear claim to be that Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, uh, son of man that D- Daniel described. Daniel was given to see that vision of the glory of the coming Christ. And he saw, described him as one coming with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, one who came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, Daniel writes, that to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
what an amazing claim to be that one. Clearly, there was only one who could ever claim to be that one, and, and Jesus was making that very claim unmistakably. Can you imagine this? To, to, to be claiming, to be sharing God's own thru, throne, ruling with God's own authority forever and ever and ever. In some ways, we can understand the reaction we see in verses 65 and 66 with the, the high priest literally tearing his robes and saying, we have no need of any further witnesses. This man has uttered blasphemy. He looks to the council and says, you've heard it. And he asks for an immediate rendering of judgment, which they give. He deserves death. And indeed, those words would have been absolutely blasphemous unless they were absolutely true. And praise God, we know that they they were true. Jesus was, Jesus is just exactly who he claimed to be. And we also see another reason why it is that he did not open his his mouth, uh, defend himself. He didn't need to. This is our our second sub-point, our last point this morning. He entrusted himself to God to vindicate his claim. Jesus was saying, I don't, I don't need to defend myself. I look to God for my defense, right? Think, think, think about those words. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of, of heaven. Amazing there. Right? It's kind of like saying, you, you can go ahead and come condemn me to death. I'm not concerned about that because a day will come where I will, where I will not be sitting before you and you in judgment of me, you will stand before me when I come as the judge of the living and the dead. For now, his enemies, they would, they would have the upper hand against him. It, the text ends with the, the Sanhedrin here judging him worthy of death. And, and, and it, it ends with him then uh, being so shamefully treated. Imagine this, spitting in his face, slapping him, mocking him, prophesy to us, Christ, who is it that struck you? And they would indeed succeed in, in having him crucified, nailed to a cross where he would die that painful, shameful death. But that would not be the end. In fact, note that Jesus in, in the text this morning was, was not only looking to the distant future, he wasn't only looking to the end of the world when he would come on the last day to judge the living and the dead. He was indeed looking to that, but don't miss those words in verse 64. From now on, Jesus was looking to something far more imminent. He was looking to that glory, which would immediately follow his suffering. In fact, indeed, even, even at his death, didn't he promise that, that criminal who died on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Immediately upon death, he comes into the presence of the Father. Arguably, that would be the, 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 uh, the immediate fulfillment of the Daniel 7 coming to the ancient of days. But surely it's the resurrection in raising him from the dead, even in body, he would be vindicated by God, declared the righteous one, and given all authority in heaven and on earth. Authority, power, power to bless, power to save to the uttermost all who trust in him. What glory, what grace, what good news, and all this would be for Jesus. 
and, and, and knowing, knowing that all this would be his, what did he do? He entrusted himself to God, entrusted himself to the Father. Isn't that what Peter tells us? First Peter chapter two, verse, verse 23, Peter writes, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I want to end this morning with some, some of those words of Peter as I think they tie in nicely to the application that we've already made. And you can flip over in your Bibles if you'd like to see this yourselves or just listen. First Peter chapter two, the very last section of the chapter there. This is, this is the very same Peter who sat there cowardly looking on. This is the same Peter who is about to deny his Lord, the Christ. But then he witnessed his resurrection. And later we see him giving this instruction to the church about what he had witnessed, the implications of what he had witnessed. And I think he gives important instruction, not only about our duties regarding the ninth commandment, but also our duties regarding the, uh, the fifth commandment, honoring authorities. Peter understood that Jesus was now the one who was high and exalted, ruling and reigning above every earthly authority. And one day all of the earth would see that. So what were the believers to do now with respect to earthly authorities, even ungodly ones? Well, for Peter, the answer was clear. They were to do exactly as their Lord had done, exactly as Jesus had done. Submit. They'll say, honor the emperor, verse 17, or uh, even servants, be subject to your masters, verse 18, even when they are unjust. The end of verse 20 says that that when you do good and you suffer for it, right? If you do good and you suffer for it, if you endure, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. But what I want us to note particularly is verse 21, 1 Peter 2, verse 21. It says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Keep your finger there, but just think on that. Your Savior suffered for you so that you might be forgiven and that in him you might do precisely as he did. Verse 22 continues, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, here it is, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. No, 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 keep keep your finger there, but just think about that. He entrusted himself to God so that you, dear Christian, might entrust yourselves to him and entrust yourselves to him, trust him for a good outcome, a good purpose, even if you're suffering unjustly, even if you're facing persecution the way these believers to whom Peter was writing were facing persecution. And increasingly in our day, we might find ourselves facing similar persecution ourselves. What's our duty? Our duty is to honor Christ. What's our duty? To honor Christ with our lips. Sometimes we're called to, uh, to speak out, right, against evil. Other times we're called to just keep our mouths shut. And it takes wisdom to know when to speak and when to shut your mouth, right? But Jesus, raised from the dead, ruling in heaven, has infinite wisdom, and he promises to give wisdom to his people who trust in him and seek his wisdom. And even if we suffer in doing good, even if we are 
condemned, unjustly condemned. We, we, we know that, the, that before Christ in his court, we will never, ever be condemned. We are vindicated, forgiven, declared righteous. And why not? Well, Peter tells us why not. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Dear Christian, he, he entrusted himself to God. He finished the work God gave him to do so that you might in turn entrust yourself to him. Yes, your lips and all your entire lives unto Jesus, the good shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Let's pray together.